Heavenly Father, as we uh, unpack uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, your word for us this morning, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive of what you are doing to us this morning. Cause us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And Lord, let this word of yours shape and mould us to live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Angelo and I have lived in this house in Eight Mile Plains for about five years now. Uh, We really love the house. Uh, But one thing that we've complained a lot about is the slope of the front yard. For most of the five years, each of us have said, hey, Josh, hey, Angela, our driveway is super slopey. It's dangerous for people to walk up. It's dangerous for our parents, for the elderly who visit us, uh, for those with access issues, for those with babies and kids running out to get up and down our slopey driveway. And at points during those five years, whether it be during tax time, which is now, using our tax returns, or when we're talking about renovations in the house, or when we're talking about money, we said, let's get these steps done. Let's get someone to have a look at our front yard. Let's smash it out even ourselves over the holidays and put steps in our front yard together. But you know what? It's been five years and we haven't done anything. Nothing, or not really nothing. We've been slow to act. The closest we get to this is Angela having an Instagram or Pinterest uh, folder of front yard step images. We actually bought some pavers once in some hope that we would do something, uh, but now those pavers are being used to stop the dog escaping through the fence. And I've also used my five years of architecture expertise to draw up some plans for these front steps and how they could work. Great idea, great intention, Great plans, but very slow to act. I reckon this trait in being slow to act, it's easy for anyone, everyone, to be like this. And our slowness to action often exposes our hearts, doesn't it? Because there's things in life that where it would be just silly and stupid to be slow to act. If there was a car coming towards you, if you just got a cancer diagnosis, if you're a Taylor Swift fan or a Swifty and tickets went on sale, if there's a free Krispy Kreme donut deal, people aren't slow to act then. And if being slow to act is a human thing, then it's something that affects believers too. Because it's easy for followers of Jesus to see gospel needs, to see the needs that God puts in front of us, but to be slow to do anything about them. I think it's actually a result of sin's effect in our world. Well, last week we started off our series in Nehemiah, and in chapter one we saw Nehemiah being consumed by God's glory. He mourned, he prayed, and he was ready to act and we thought about what it means for us as followers of Jesus today. 
Well, this week, Nehemiah 2 picks up from this readiness to act at the end of chapter 1. You see, Nehemiah 2 is full of doing stuff. It's action-oriented. It's about getting to work. But even amidst the work, 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 we see behind it Nehemiah and his priorities and the God that stands behind all that Nehemiah does. And we'll translate all of this to us today as people of God living on the other side of the cross of Jesus, knowing that all of God's promises, his covenant, his glory has ultimately been revealed through his son, Jesus, on the cross. Last week was being consumed by God's glory, and today's focus is working for God's glory. And if you have your Bibles, keep them open. Verse 1 starts like this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. If you look a bit back, Nehemiah chapter 1 ended with Nehemiah praying for God's favor as his servant before the king. And chapter 2 begins four months after the news of Jerusalem had reached him. So probably four months of mourning, praying, and fasting. And Nehemiah here recounts being at work as a cupbearer in the presence of this Persian king. The verse continues, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. It's likely that Nehemiah planned this encounter with the king uh, because it was risky business to be sad before the king. You see, it was etiquette to keep your feelings to yourself and to be happy and joyful in the king's court. And Artaxerxes, this king here, he's just like any other ruthless king of those times. Artaxerxes, his dad got assassinated, so he sought revenge himself and he killed the murderer and all his sons and his family. This guy, Artaxerxes, he had the courage to wage war against Athens and to upset this king could have really easily be met with the king's anger and wrath. But here, Nehemiah's plan works, and his sadness before the king opens the way for dialogue. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and where will you return? when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, 
Let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I think this dialogue is pretty self-explanatory. Nehemiah obviously thought through his plan. He's executed it, pointing out the ruin of Jerusalem, requesting to go and build it, seeking the right material for the job. And King Artaxerxes, he responds favorably, pleased to send Nehemiah and granting him all that was asked. We're not going to analyze the dialogue too much more in detail, uh, but what Nehemiah, I think, wants to point out is that behind all of this interaction, there is the hand of an even bigger ruler and king at work, the sovereign ruler, the covenant creator God who Nehemiah prayed to in chapter one. He's the one who's ultimately at work. We see in verse 4, before Nehemiah petitions to the king, he petitions first to the God of heaven. And in verse 8, after the king grants all that was asked, he looks upward again. And it's not because the king was generous or that Nehemiah was persuasive or his plan was great. It was the good hand of God at work. You see, amidst of all of Nehemiah's work in response to God's city, God's promises, and God's covenant in ruins, Nehemiah is convinced of the greater reality, the God, the one ruling and reigning, that God is the one who's working according to his covenant promises. That even when Nehemiah stands before an earthly king, he's serving his heavenly king. Yahweh, the creator and holy God, the God of eternal salvation and judgment. Well, as we keep going and murdering through this chapter, uh, like I said at the start, it keeps going in the narrative, action, 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 getting to work, doing a lot of stuff. And that's what keeps happening as we see Nehemiah travel to and arrive in Jerusalem. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. See, Nehemiah, he's traveling here. He's traveled 1,300 Ks uh, from Susa, the palace, to Jerusalem. He's got this Persian security detail, the bodyguards with him. And we're introduced here to two people that we'll find out more about in later chapters. Sanballat, a Horonite. He's probably the governor of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, And he's from a prominent family in Ammon to the east of Jerusalem. 
We'll talk about them more in later weeks. Nehemiah, he arrives in Jerusalem and he does, I think, a secret surveillance, a secret site visit of the walls. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. You see, Nehemiah, he does this circle around some of the walls in the city. He goes from the valley gate in the west to the dung gate to the south, literally a gate that went to the tip where they chucked dung in. They went then to the fountain gate on the southeast. Then he ditched his horse and walked the rest of the way until he got back to the valley gate. You see, Nehemiah, he heard the news, chapter 1, but he wanted to see it for himself. He wanted to see and soak in the shame, the destruction, the brokenness, the inglorious ruins of God's city. He wanted to own all of that for himself in his own eyes. Only then does he start the work in verse 17. Then I said to them, that's the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the workers from verse 16. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I took them and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Here Nehemiah signals the start of the work. He summons the people. He shows them how sad the situation is. He invites them to join in the work. And he assures them, pointing them to God first, and then pointing to the king's promise, uh, permission. And the order of that is important. And the people respond favorably. They say, let's do it. Let's get to work. Let's be part of this restoring work of God's city to its glory. Let's rebuild. And this rebuilding work is off to a great start from what we can see. But we're again introduced to the opposition to the work that we won't touch on today, but we'll flesh on more in later chapters. Verse 18. But when Samballot the Horonite is to the north, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant to the west, to the east, and Geshem the Arid, who's kind of like the ruler in the south, so they're all hemmed around uh, Jerusalem and Judah, when they heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Note that Nehemiah ends here, just as he started, before the king, uh, before the Jewish workers, before opposition, but with the God of heaven 
in his rightful place. He's the one ruling and reigning. He's the one overseeing the work. It's his city, his covenant, his promises, and his glory. You see, Nehemiah isn't the hero of Nehemiah. It's God. He's center stage in all of this. Well, Tim and I uh, have been chatting about this Nehemiah series. Uh, Tim's preaching next week, by the way. And some of the chapters are not too easy to apply. Uh, Tim said, good luck to me this week. Then I said, good luck to him next week. Uh, It's hard uh, because many sermons that we see from Nehemiah out there, they put up Nehemiah as the hero. Or they forget to see how Nehemiah points to Jesus. Or they reduce this book to leadership tips. And we want to be faithful, as faithful as we can to God's word as possible and God's plans and promises that center on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Well, this morning I've racked my head around this for the whole week and I've landed with four points of application for us uh, as followers of Jesus today uh, coming out of Nehemiah chapter 2. And the first one is this, know who is king. All through, all through today's passage, Nehemiah's reality, even amidst the Persian king, even amidst the people as he comes and tells them about his plans, is that God is king, that God is ruler, that God is reigning, that he is the one on heaven on high. And today, God, he's still ruling and reigning. And he's installed a new king overall. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the king, the one on the throne, the resurrected Lord. Paul says of Jesus as he rose from death to life in this way, in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Master, is the one ruling to the glory of God the Father. You see, Nehemiah, he lived fueled by the reality that God is ruling and reigning. Well, we live today fueled by the reality that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and He is the one ruling and reigning. There is no higher or greater rule than Jesus Christ on the throne. No earthly leaders or influences, not even the forces of Satan can threaten the rule of King Jesus. And this should fill us with confidence to live for Jesus, to work for the cause of Jesus, to be confident and bold even in the face of earthly powers that oppose Jesus. I think our danger today is that we forget who's really in control. We forget 
that Jesus is on the throne. We fear earthly powers and forget the greater rule of King Jesus. So ask yourself, who's on the throne? Who's ruling and reigning? Are you gripped by this reality that Jesus rules and reigns, that he's on the throne? And let that reality cause you to look to Jesus first and foremost, to serve Jesus and his cause first and foremost, to give you confidence and assurance day by day, moment by moment, as you live for Jesus. He's the one who's king on the throne. The second application today is survey the brokenness. In today's passage, Nehemiah, he gets to Jerusalem and he wants to see the brokenness for himself. You see, he wants to feel, to soak up, to let the brokenness sink in and pierce his heart. And as we live for Jesus today, we don't look to the walls of Jerusalem. We don't look to Israel. We look to its fulfillment in Jesus, God's promised Messiah and Savior. And we see the brokenness today of Jesus not being glorified in our world today. Jesus not being the master of people's lives, as we heard before from Chris I think we all can sense that Christianity is declining in our Western world. Less people follow Jesus in Australia today. But we really need to see, to feel, and to let the brokenness of our society without Jesus sink in, to sink in and pierce our hearts. I used this census data at the beginning of the year but let's also visualize what this looks like. In 2011, 61% of Christians in the, in, of Australians ticked Christian in the survey, in the census. The 61% includes Protestants, Catholics, even groups that we would call cults that don't follow Jesus, 61%. In 2016, it goes down to 52%. You can see one whole line of those people fall. In 2021, this goes down to 44%. 44% still sounds fairly okay, doesn't it? But if you drill into it, Protestant evangelical Christians, 20%. It's getting a bit lower. 20%, but still feels kind of okay. But look at this. Regular, church-going, Bible-believing Christians. 3%. Three in every 100 people you know are followers of Jesus. That means if you know three believers, there's 97 people out there who aren't trusting in Jesus. We look at Japan with 0.3% believers, and we say that's a big problem. But our danger 
is that we often don't see the brokenness in our own backyard. We're used to it. We're accustomed to it. We forget that a problem exists or we downplay it. And we trick ourselves into thinking that there's no problem at all. Well, Nehemiah 2 teaches us to survey the brokenness, to let it sink in and pierce your heart. So as you reflect, ask yourself this morning, how bad is the problem? How bad do you think is the problem of Jesus not being glorified, not being seen as Lord, Saviour, Master, Ruler in Upper Mount Gravatt, Brisbane, Australia? How real and broken is the situation of people in our suburb and beyond not trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour? I saw a quote uh, online from the REACH Australia conference that I went to in May, and it says 50% of Australian churches have 50 people or less in them. But if you look at the fields of our country that's outside rather than the barn of our local church, you see that 98% of people in this land don't trust in Jesus. He's rounding down to 2%. That's millions upon millions who are, not, who are just not ready for our Lord Jesus Christ to return. We've got to face the reality. We can't sweep it under the carpet. Heaven and hell are real, and real people go there. Survey the brokenness. The third point this morning Know that Jesus has done the hard work for us. As we've seen, there's a lot of work happening in Nehemiah chapter 2. And for us today, it's, it's easy for us to simply respond in works, action, getting stuck into it. And there's a place for that, and we'll get to it soon. But I think with this theme of work and action, especially thinking about the covenant promises... We're to feel the difference between Nehemiah and us. You see, Nehemiah, he worked to restore God's covenant relationship with his people. And he sought to do that through rebuilding a wall. But for us today as people in Jesus, we don't work to restore our relationship with God. We're not working to rebuild the covenant promises. You see, we're saved by grace because Jesus has done that hard, impossible work for us. The hard work that's impossible for any of us to ever accomplish. We've sung about it, we've prayed about it. Jesus, he lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the covenant obligations that Israel and us never could. He died the death that we deserve. He took the penalty of sin for us on our behalf. And he rose into new life, declaring victory over sin and death and ascending to the throne as king over all. And he gives new life, offering those who trust in Jesus and his work of salvation 
to life forever. So before we talk about works and action, let's be reminded afresh that Jesus did the impossible work of winning salvation for us, that was saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. There's no works that can be added to Jesus' saving work. So as you reflect on this point, do you know that Jesus has done that impossible work for you to be saved and enjoy life forever? Well, as we come to the fourth and final point for us today, it's this, be part of the work. Nehemiah 2 is intensely practical and action-driven. It's full of plans and works and actions, and it's all in response to God's glory in ruins, and it's all in light of God on the throne. And today for us, while we're saved by grace, we're also saved for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 8, I think, puts the two together well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, living for Jesus, living in light of grace, is intensely practical and action-driven. We can't say we're followers of Jesus and to not follow through and follow Jesus, not to be caught up with the brokenness of Jesus' name and God's glory, not to respond to the world who doesn't follow Jesus. You see, if we're followers of Jesus, we're to follow Jesus. We're to live in response to Jesus on the throne, Jesus whom all of God's promises find their fulfillment. So we are to do good works. We are to share Jesus. We are to be part of the cause of Jesus. We are to be part of his kingdom work, bringing glory to him. I think we all know this. It's pretty clear in God's word. It's part of our mission and vision statements. It's been on repeat in our teaching. But I think one of our biggest dangers is this phrase, whether it's a thought, a mindset, or a comment. And it's this phrase, someone else will do it. You see someone in your networks who's not a believer, who's in your family, your friendship groups, your colleague. And you respond, someone else will do it. They'll share Jesus with them. You see a gospel need in the church, small struggling local churches, kids and youth not being discipled, adults not following Jesus, non-believing welcomers or even believing newcomers walk into church or a church event 
You see these things. Someone else will do it, not me. You see a gospel need in our community. Schools without RI teachers. Retirement homes without good biblical teaching. Social clubs without any Christian witness. Or simply just looking around in the houses around us, knowing that only 3% of Australians follow Jesus. And you say, yes, that's sad, but not me. Someone else will do it. We saw the stats before. The brokenness. The state of Jesus' name in our country. How will you act? Do you say to yourself, it's not too bad? Or it is bad, but someone else will do it, not me. Well, let me challenge you this morning to say, this is bad. People around us don't know Jesus and are on the highway to hell. How can I act? How can I be part of this work? What can I do? How does God want to use me? How can I live for Jesus, who's on the throne to give him glory? Be part of the work. As we finish off, let's pray that God would use each of us and stir us to good works as we seek to give Jesus glory. Let's pray. God of heaven, as we consider Nehemiah in how we follow Jesus today, we pray that you would help us to be at work for the glory of Jesus. Remind us that it is Jesus who's ruling and reigning the universe on his throne. Help us to see the brokenness around us of people not trusting in Jesus. Lord, cause us to proclaim Christ and make disciples wherever you place us. And amidst all the work and action and living for Jesus, help us to be grounded in your saving grace. Thankful that Jesus has indeed worked life and salvation in us, and it's a free gift of grace from you to all of us who trust in Jesus. Use us as we work for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.